And, uh, you know, I used to be that guy that said procurement were only here to make my life a misery. I've literally said that before. <laughs> and now I'm, I don't say that at all. Like at the end of the day, they've got a job to do for their business. And once you can, if you can understand what that job is and what they're trying to do, yeah, you know, it makes sense. My name's Mike Lander, and you're listening to Marketing Negotiations, the good, the bad, and the ugly in partnership with The Drum, where we bring you negotiation insights from CMOs, agency leaders, and acclaimed authors. Craig, uh, thanks ever so much for joining us on the Marketing Negotiations, The Drum podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Uh, and obviously, we know each other uh, through business, um, and you kind of volunteered to kind of come along and share your experience around negotiating deals within the kind of marketing space. But before we do that, um, just really kind of, first of all, uh, a bit about your background, kind of where you've come from, uh, and then something that you're really kind of proud of in your life, don't care whether it's work or home. Sure. Uh, so the, the short version of uh, of my background is I, I started with uh, Kraft Foods, so a large consumer goods company. Did a graduate scheme there, um, and then went on to manage some small national retailers, and then moved over to Mars Foods, uh, where I worked in the Wrigley business and managed Tesco for a year. Wow! Um, and then decided that the corporate life was not for me, and um, skipped completely differently into a basically becoming an entrepreneur. I took over the family business and uh, transformed it from a, from a print company into a technology company, and that's what I've been doing for the last eleven years. So, uh, what happened? So why taking over the family business? What happened? I mean, it, it is very common. Well, actually, actually, it's not that common, actually, to, to have a generational switch. Uh, it's quite hard. But what kind of prompted that? Yeah, well, it certainly wasn't in planned. It was never my intention to go into the family business, despite having worked in it quite a bit when I was a kid. Um, but I think it was just two things, really. One is uh, managing Tesco when I was about 25 was just too much for me at that point in time. Um, kind of found myself in that position through bad luck, really. Um, and it kicked my ass. Um, so after a year of that, I was pretty burnt out. But also, I kind of looked a little bit further up the chain of command in that business, you know, further up the sales uh, ladder and realized, you know, looked at somebody who was 20 years ahead of me and just thought, that isn't what I want to do. That doesn't excite me or interest me. So I knew I wanted to do something different. My parents were looking to retire from their business so they could sail around the world. So it was just coincidence, really. They needed someone to run the business. I wanted to do something different. And before I knew it, I was running uh, my own business at 26. At 26, which is kind of remarkable. I mean, I <laughs> I didn't run my first business until, I don't know, I must have been about probably mid to late 30s. And it's... Well, you can explain your kind of story. I found it incredibly hard. When I bought a business and took it over, it was completely different. Like, completely different. You're staring at these people who basically work for you, and you've got to show leadership overnight. So how did that feel in a family business? Uh, you know what? I think um, I think because I'd had a bit of exposure to the business over you know the 10 years that my mom and dad ran the business. You know, So I kind of knew it. I knew, you know, I knew what it did. I knew what the customers were. I'd been in the business. I'd met quite a few of the people. Um, but yeah, it was definitely difficult coming in as the son of the owner. My brother worked in the business at the time. There were some other people that had been there for a long time. So I was. it was definitely quite awkward initially. But um, 
it's one of those situations where it's sort of sink or swim. You know, I didn't really have much choice. Um, my my parents were gone, right? They on a boat in the middle of nowhere, couldn't contact them, and they just left me the business and said, you know, do your best. So yeah. that's what I did. <laughs> And what happened on that? We'll get into the negotiation stuff in a second, but I'm obviously fascinated by your kind of story. Um, what happened in that transition? Why did you transition from, I used to work in the print industry, so I don't know it that well, but I know it reasonably well. Um, going from a, a quite a traditional industry and saying, we can tech enable this at the age of 26, whether it's 26 or 30, whenever you did it, that that's quite a big transition and quite a big risk. W- what prompted that? Well, I think it, some of it goes back to the original insight on which the business was founded by my dad. Um, so his insight, which is re- relevant to this conversation, is that he was from the print industry. He had been a print supplier to a large number of big blue chip consumer goods companies. And his insight was that if you were a printer or any other sort of commodity vendor, if you can imagine the buying process is like a kind of uh, a continuum, like a line, you're basically at the end of the line. Right, you know, the order gets briefed, it gets kind of estimated, and then eventually it will hit a point where they go out to to let's say ten different vendors, and it and it just becomes about price, and uh, you've got you've got no kind of leverage really at that point. So his insight was, could they, could we use technology to push ourselves further up that process, so that actually there was almost no vent, vendor kind of procurement process. You're actually ingrained in their supply chain because you're actually you're locked in to the very early design and specification stage, Correct. which makes it very difficult for people like me to bid it out. Exactly, exactly. So that that was his insight, and he managed to do that at a previous company, and that's kind of what he founded the business on. But just through the nature of when you start a business and you put loads of your own money in it and time, you got to pay the bills, right? You got to, you, you know, they had bought a large bit of expensive print equipment; they had to pay for that. So the the strategy to somewhat degree kind of got a little bit of sidelined, but also they were way too early. They were probably 10, 15 years too early to, to really kind of enact that idea in the enterprise space. So when I kind of took over the business, I spotted what, you know, I identified the value in what they'd done. Um, but I also saw that they were doing loads of other things for everyone. Um, so the what I really kind of did, the biggest thing, I guess, was really just focus the business on the one thing that really, really worked out of the 10 or so that they were doing. And I literally shut off the other nine, focused everything on that one. And um, the reason for that is I could see that we were adding value for the customers. I could see they really liked it. I could see that it was unique. Um, And I could could, uh, relate to the problem because I'd experienced it myself in my previous job. So, and I guess the other thing was I could see that this was a global problem that could be like, that could be done at scale. So you've just described what people have written down for, you know, or tried to write down for years, which is around find a big problem where it's really sticky. There's a compelling need. You've got something which is unique that's defendable for a while. And that problem keeps coming back. It's not a one-off problem that if you solve it once, it kind of goes away forever. Yeah. And and I think the the additional bit is that uh, people will pay quite a bit of money to solve it. Exactly. Because it's worth a lot of money. Yeah, it's an expensive problem to solve, and there's a lot of savings in there. There's a lot of benefit to be had on, on the on the sales side. So it's it's a problem that people were motivated to solve, but nobody really knew how to solve it. I mean, typically when we sell into a company, they don't. Sometimes they don't even know they have this problem until they start digging around and they're like, "Oh yeah." This is so just so describe good. kind of what you do and what. So bring it up to date now. Kind of what is the problem that you solve, and what does your company do? Sure. Um, 
So the problem that we solve essentially, um, I'll, I'll give an example. So we work with some of the biggest spirit companies in the world. And um, those companies have salespeople who are on the road selling into bars, restaurants, hotels, anywhere that sells alcohol, including retailers. And um, as part of the selling process, they've kind of got two main jobs. One is to sell the product in to the to the customer. And the second part of the job is to help that customer sell the product back out again. Otherwise, it's just going to be a glass bottle gathering dust on the shelf and tying up cash. So as part of the process of um, supporting that customer to, to drive sales of their brand, they will provide marketing materials. Um, and those marketing materials are branded. So they contain you know drink imagery, logos, other brand assets. But they also need to be customized for the end outlet. Because you know their set of drinks, their cocktail list, for example, is completely unique to them. They'll have the unique logo, look and feel. So what essentially we do is we replace the way that things are done now. So the typical way, the traditional way of solving that problem is to either mass print lots of generic marketing. Um, so that we done cheaply in Eastern Europe or uh, Asia, sent over, stuck in a warehouse, and then eventually kind of distributed problem with that is that about 30 to 50% of it never leaves the warehouse. So it get, ends up getting incinerated. And what does leave the warehouse isn't that relevant for the customer. It's totally generic. So they don't really want it. And then the second way to do it is you use graphic designers, um, which often does give a really good result, but it doesn't scale. The more orders you do, the more expensive it gets. So once you're servicing thousands or hundreds of thousands of customers, it just becomes unviable. So what we do is we replace those two traditional methods with technology. So we put our app in the hands of the sales force. They can then create customized and branded marketing materials on demand as part of their sales call using technology. Um, Sitting behind that is what we call a cloud printing network. So when the order gets printed, it gets sent to a printer as close as possible to them and gets shipped out. So we cut down the lead times massively from what could be sometimes, you know, with a mass print model, it's nine months. You know, with the designer model, you're looking at four to eight weeks. You know, we do it in two to four days. So that means salespeople can react much faster to opportunities. Yeah. And you've also got this kind of distributed um, print model, therefore, that the carbon footprint's smaller because you're printing as far as you, as close as you can to the point of kind of consumption. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and there's no wastage, right? So everything that gets printed gets used. Um, so it's vastly better from an environmental point of view. And, and that is something that our customers are now looking for. Um, previously, it was, it was a drum we've been banging for a long time, but nobody was really listening. But now people are listening and, and asking is for it. So it's great. Yeah. So let's talk about, given who you work with and given your kind of background, you've worked on simple negotiations, tactical negotiations, which are about price through to working with global drinks companies, where I know from my kind of background in that area in a limited way, they're really complex deals. So just talk about the kind of the evolution of your negotiating style over those years and what you've kind of learned about negotiating uh, in those kind of contexts. Yeah, I've definitely uh, spanned the kind of spectrum of negotiations from the most possible basic you can imagine to really, really complex. Um, so again, when I started my career at Kraft, I was selling into uh, retailers and, and at that time it was the discounters I was selling into. So like pound shops and things like that. And essentially, that was like a market trading negotiation. <laughs> you know, most of those companies were former market traders, so you know they were they were very they were very good at it. But it was it was interesting because we had massive brands, right? Really, like world world famous brands that these retailers almost had to stock. So my 
uh, at that time, bear in mind, I was only in my early 20s um, and had very little business experience. My negotiation style was basically take it or leave it, <laughs> right? Here's the product, here's the price, take it or leave it, boom. And you know what, it actually worked, but uh, I didn't leave myself much room <laughs> um, <coughs> for negotiation. But you can and, do that when you've got <clears throat> this kind of batna, so best alternative to a negotiated agreement. You had plenty of alternatives because you were selling product that everyone wanted. So you knew if that customer said no, as long as you're in that zone of agreement where you know that that price is top end of the market, but acceptable, you could go somewhere else and sell it again to someone else. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think, um, you know, my ability as a salesperson in that company to negotiate was extremely limited. So we were given a price like window, um, which, you know, at that point, I think was say, say 4p, right? Because it sold for a pound, right? So the price corridor is really narrow. Yeah, it's like a 4P corridor. So I just went in at the top of that corridor, right? Like, get the best price possible, which actually, interestingly, a lot of people didn't do. They went in with the lowest because they just wanted to get the deal. That's kind of big company mentality. That's just but bizarre, isn't it? That's just... wanted to get the deal. I mean, this kind of, this whole anchoring thing. Why would you anchor low when you've got the opportunity to anchor high and then yield a bit if you needed to? It's very strange. Yeah, but this is when the difference, you know, if it's your business and that's that profit's Absolutely. going into your pocket, you're going to fight over every penny. If it's not well, your business, you don't really care. Well, some people don't care. Anyway, yeah. I did. <clears throat> so I went at the highest price, take it or leave it, boom, done. Um, very basic and not the best. Um, and then when I went over to Mars, I actually worked within their Wrigley business, which was a business they had just bought. And that was really interesting because they had a is that Wrigley, business. is that the gum? Wrigley chewing gum, yeah, yeah. Uh, and various other kind of products they do. But they they, um, they were totally unique to anything I've ever seen before because they had a 94% market share. Wow. Yeah, and that had recently come down, I think, from like 96 or 98 because they had a, a bit of competition for the first ever time. So their, that kind of negotiation really, well, I wouldn't call it negotiation at all, right? We had, so I was dealing with Tesco. I had one buyer whose job was to buy that one category. Right. We were the category, <laughs> essentially. So um, I've never seen anything quite like it, actually. We, d- we didn't promote. We didn't need to promote. Why would you? No. You know, and the t- payment terms were incredible. I wouldn't say what they were, but like, no- like nothing I've ever seen before. And it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was negotiation at all because they had to stock it. It was a 40 million pound category at the time. Wow. If they didn't have us, they didn't have the category. So it, it was basically a supply chain management job for, my, for myself. So, um, and this very, is where you've got, I mean, interesting in a kind of a buyer supply relationship, this is where there's disproportionality. There's effectively a single supply market. And on the demand side, they have to stock it for all sorts of reasons, um, not just that consumers demand it, but because also it, um, it's a sell through product and all sorts of things. So you've now got like, well, as a buyer, I'm stuck. I've got to come and talk to you. I've got to buy it. Now, there's other things I can negotiate around, but they're not really a negotiation. It's really a coming to an agreement about lead times and payment terms and you know, all sorts of things and preferential treatment and be right. It's not That's not a negotiation. Yeah, it was remarkable. And I think because of that, because of their position in the market, it had um, created quite a bit of complacency in the company. I was only there for a year and it was there just after they'd been bought. So the business was changing quite substantially and it's probably totally different now. But because they'd had this dominant position for so long, they hadn't had to work hard really at all to uh, to maintain that position. And um, and, they, and they'd held a great margin. So there was quite a, let's say it was very comfortable 
uh, culture. But interestingly, just as I just before I arrived, two new competitors came into the market, um, Cadbury and Mentos, and actually they bought their way into the market. They actually um, paid a retailer to to basically take us out and uh, put their product in, and that it was like panic stations at at Wrigley because they had ne- they never had to compete before. Suddenly they were like, oh we don't know we don't know what to do um so that was quite interesting but it kind of faded away and, and i'm sure they're they're smashing it out again now but um yeah so you know both of those companies i would say from a negotiation point of view very basic absolutely in in terms of what i was doing i'm sure at the upper end of the kind of business it was different but my from my perspective it was very basic so talk about more complex negotiations what's it like now negotiating you'd have to talk about your specific client negotiations because they're confidential but the themes now about the kind of how why is the negotiation more complex yeah well so kind of i've done a fair few in my last <laughs> yeah. 10 years running this business and most of them have been actually they've all been with large multinationals typically been international deals and typically a million plus um size a million per year plus and um you know, I'll use a couple of examples. So there was one particular deal that we did with a client uh, that was a European deal. It was the first European deal we'd actually done. And just because of the way that it came, you know, our product was uh, working with in the UK with them. And one of their very senior European uh, directors was in the, the audience when we were presenting the product to the UK team. And he basically came up to us and said, this is brilliant. I want to have this across Europe. Love it. And what that then led to was like a fast track procurement process, um, which didn't follow the corporate process um, at all. I would personally, I would say it was very effective. And, you know, if he was in, if that was my business, I'd want to see people behave like that because the, we were, we got the business, I think we were up and running within maybe three to four months, you know, through the procurement process and live and adding value. But we didn't follow the procurement process. We didn't pull procurement in until the very last minute, which obviously put their nose massively out of joint. It didn't actually impact that deal, but it impacted subsequent conversations we had with the procurement people because they felt that we'd kind of gone around them, which we we hadn't intentionally done that. It was just really the speed of, of how it picked up. And we then went on to do a global deal with that client. And that's when it really created a bit of a problem. So that deal ended up taking three years to sign. Wow. Which was just excruciating. And I would say the part of the, the reason for that was that um, that particular procurement team was very, very lean, right? It had one buyer, basically, for print uh, point of sale across the globe. And she was buying all sorts of different categories. And we we were a relatively small part of that. So not, not only do they not have a lot of time, but they don't have a lot of kind of understanding of the category. Um, and because what we do is totally unique, right? It's very hard for a, for a buyer who's used to buying certain things to suddenly look at a, a new service or a new product and go, "Oh wow, like, what's this? I need to go and understand this." Yeah, <clears throat> and I think especially if it's it was, only like if it's 05 percent of of that person's spend that they spend on management, you've got to, it's not worth the effort to completely educate yourself about that new subcategory and how it works compared to the 99.5% of spend that is regular stuff that you need to be able to manage. Because if you save 3% off that stuff, it has a massive impact on the bottom line. Yeah, for sure. And um, I think the other kind of challenge we had was, was was mostly my fault because I'm quite a competitive individual. 
Surely and not I, Craig. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like a, if anyone knows a disc profile, I'm a high D uh, or a red. And um, the the buyer had the same profile. So we were both coming at it from quite a combative and competitive point of view, like a kind of win-lose scenario. That was just creating stalemate. We just weren't getting anywhere. I also kind of liken negotiation to a bit of a dance. I'm not a good dancer myself, but you, when you do dance, like I would say a ballroom dance, you, both partners kind of need to know how to dance in order for it to work. If you've got one partner who's an amazing dancer and the other one who can't, right, it's going to be a lot of toes stepped on. And the thing there was a bit of that going on, right? We, did, we weren't kind of coming at it from the same, same place. But what really kind of changed that conversation entirely was I actually sat down and had lunch with her one day. And started to understand about her as a person. You know, I found out that um, she was running her own business in the back, in you know, outside of work. And she was like a, a really very entrepreneurial character and learned a lot about her kind of background and where she'd come from. And that totally changed the game because suddenly we we weren't competing. We were actually like trying to work together to solve a problem. Um, and there was a sort of mutual understanding and respect there. And, and then, you know, quite not too long after that, we were able to kind of get the deal done. But in that um, moment... I talk a lot about this with you know, clients and just people that I know in procurement and in marketing about what you've seemed to have described there is people have demands. So you've got positions and if you've got two combative negotiators, you'll both state your positions and you'll basically come to a stalemate because you can't basically move on your positions. Whereas if you understand the interest, what's motivating people, what sits behind those positions, those demands you get breakthrough moments. And that sounds like exactly what you did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I've used that um, same learning again with another buyer. It wasn't actually a procurement person, but it was our kind of main commercial contact at another client. And um, she was a tough cookie. Um, I've not come across many, many like her. And, um, you know, she was quite uh, very, very direct, very, um, I would almost go as far as saying as a, a little bit abrasive, um, and it wasn't just with me. I, I could see her writing emails to other suppliers that were similar. Um, and again, I had a conversation with her on a train once, understood about kind of her upbringing and the fact, of, you know, I won't go into details, but, you know, she'd had quite a tough life and she'd got really far. Uh, she'd traveled a long way from where she started, um, both metaphorically, but also geographically. And um, the, min the minute we, we kind of showed a little bit of vulnerability, to each other, the whole dynamic changed, and suddenly you're you're having a conversation with two humans, right, rather than like two ro robots to do battle with each other. And that was a huge eye opener for me. And I, and now, in any deal that we do, we always make sure that we engage with procurement early, so we don't do what we did in the previous one, but we engage on a personal level, right? So we'll, if we're possible, we'll go out for lunch or for dinner, we'll have a few beers or cocktails, and we'll actually take the time to understand the individual long way before we start negotiating. Um, that is the ideal situation, in my point of view. Exactly. And it's this, um, and we've talked about this before, about, you know, you if you've got a list of 20 clients that you're targeting, at least 18 months in advance, if they're big enterprise clients, meeting the procurement people, engage with them, have a conversation. If you can, get together with them, go out for lunch, do something, get to know the person way before you start negotiating. Has massive, massive dividends that pay off later. But 99% of companies I talk to, certainly marketing agencies, don't do that because they think procurement are the devil. So 
they all leave them until the very end. And then it ends up in this horrible fight where it's been thrown over the wall for procurement to do something with. And it just doesn't work, especially not in enterprises. No, no. And I've learned that lesson the hard way. And uh, I actually wrote a blog about this on LinkedIn. And I, I have totally changed my my view on this. And, uh, I, you know, I used to be that guy that said procurement were only here to make my life a misery. I, I've literally said that before. <laughs> And now I'm, I don't say that at all. Like at the end of the day, they've got a job to do for their business. And once you can, if you can understand what that job is and what they're trying to do, yeah, you know, it makes sense. But I think the other thing is that you need to take the time to educate the procurement people about what you do and why you're different. Um, I was going to ask you my about business, this. Yeah, so my business is quite unique because we solve quite a specific problem in a specific niche. And we do it in a unique way versus the traditional method, right? And And when we're working with buyers, we're looking at two things. We're looking at technology and we're also looking at uh, like printed marketing materials. So our contracts are typically dual contracts, right? Which is very unusual. And in some cases we have two buyers and we need to pull those things together, which is usually quite challenging. So we have to spend quite a lot of time bringing the procurement team up to speed because they've typically never seen anything like this before. Um, And it will be quite different from what they're buying. So for example, um, all, all of the companies we work with, um, they use uh, what I would call a print manager or sort of marketing services provider that do the majority of their buying for them, like an outsourced procurement team. So what we tend to find is that procurement people don't actually have huge amounts of knowledge about the, the day-to-day operations because they've essentially outsourced it to another company to do it for them. So when we come along and we're working directly with the buyer, we, we have a whole lot of work to do to educate them on what we do. And, but most importantly, why we have to educate them on why it's different from, from what they do right now with their current vendor. And that that can take time. Um, but we've got pretty good at communicating, I would say. And the key here is my advice to, to other kind of business owners or people that are selling into procurement is understand why you are unique, right? Um, you know, we call it the three unique model. So those are three things that only your company can do in that combination, right? So another vendor might be able to do one or two, but they can't, nobody else can do all three. And if you can communicate that to the client and ensure, well, firstly, those three uniques have to be relevant <laughs> for the client, right? They have to be really, really important. And what we've done successfully is identifying what those those are, because um, obviously we have lots of unique selling points to what we do, but you understand what are, the th- what are the three that are most important to the client, what are the three that only you can do, and you put that right at the heart of your proposition to the client, and you just keep hammering those over and over and over and again. And what we've been really successful at doing is because we're, we engage early, we build relationships, we educate the buyer, we can actually educate the RFP process. So when the RFP finally comes out, it doesn't look too dissimilar from the conversations that we've been having, which is ideal state. Um, because imagine you're the, let's say you're the second or third vendor or whatever, who gets that RFP, comes out of the blue, you've never seen it before. You're like, what is this? You know, you're on the back foot immediately. So we've got a, that model I've just described now, I would say is what I think is like the gold standard and how to do it. And because we've done multiple deals and got better each time, we've just taken those learnings and roll them into the next one. So the deal that we're working on now, uh, which you've been helping us with, yep. is the biggest we've ever done, the most complex we've ever done. But I would say it's the best we've ever done. We, yep. I think we've done a brilliant job of, of negotiating. And, uh, and actually, it's been a pleasure to negotiate 
Yeah. Because which very is the collaborative. First time I could, very, very collaborative, very transparent. Um, you know, genuinely working with procurement and also all the other stakeholders in their business to find the best possible kind of outcome. And <clears throat> negotiation, in my view, is like it's two sides working together to find the best possible outcome. And what we've ended up with is a deal that's actually better for both sides than we than would have been if we just started from our initial kind of points. Exactly. You know, um, so we've kind of traded back and forth and actually created the optimum deal in my view. And I think in their view as well. So everyone feels good about it, you know, and I think what's important because we built those relationships and we've done it, you know, in a really sort of amicable and friendly way, Unlike other deals where by the time I got to the end, I, I, I didn't feel particularly happy <laughs> about the whole process. And, you know, the relationships were strained, which isn't the, you don't want to then go into a deal with a customer and not be in a good position, you know, from, from a relationship point of view. Whereas with this one, I feel like we're getting to the end of the process. And actually, we're just ready. To, like, we're in a really good position. Everyone's happy with the deal. And boom, off you go. So, um yeah, it's been it's it's really been quite rewarding actually to be to be part. And of that's it. the kind of like the end of the not the not the end of your negotiation journey because it's by far the end. But that's an interesting kind of like arc of where you came from and where you've ended up now and the difference. And the difference is around the more deals that you negotiate, the more people you experience, the more things that go wrong, you, the more you learn and apply them. So on that kind of because <clears throat> I'm conscious of your time, on that kind of point, if you had to like just give a couple of big tips to anyone that's on that journey of so typically my yeah the audience for this is they'll be mainly kind of like you know supply side there'll be maybe million turnover up to 20 50 100 million turnover but as they're scaling up someone on that's on that journey of scaling up and negotiating more complex deals what are the kind of two or three big things you'd say that you've learned about what will make that more successful um I think I've mentioned a couple of them. This kind of not being too combative or competitive. I think just if you are like that, right, just settle down, right, um, and just kind of forget about that and um, really focus on getting on the best result for both parties, not just yourself. I think that's the first one. And the second one is building relationships early with with uh, procurement, educate them, build trust, build relationships, um, and be able to inform that RFP. Um, I think the third one would be to make sure that you have really um, strong relationships across their business because the more comp- so if you take the initial example that I gave with um, when I worked at Mars and Craft, I had one buyer. I basically had one point of contact, and their job was to buy my product. In the deals that we do now, um, we might be engaging with I don't know up to twenty different stakeholders from various different departments, IT, finance, sales, marketing, legal, compliance, and procurement. And you need to have all of those stakeholders, you know, engaged in the product, uh, in the uh, process, sorry, to to make sure that it's successful. And um, stakeholder uh, kind of management is a critical part of that. And I would say that the key thing is to have one, at least one person who is your sponsor and typically a commercial person, someone who really deeply understands the value that you're going to add to their business and has enough kind of capital, sort of political capital within their business, whether it's just influence or whether it's seniority or rank or whatever, to really push it through because you are going to get to points where the process gets bogged down. And you know sometimes that can be in procurement. Um, where they're maybe kind of 
being a little bit pedantic about certain points. And that's where you can go back to your that stakeholder and say, look, I'm having a bit of trouble here. Can you just kind of give this a bit of nudge? And if you don't have that, you'll get bogged down for years. And I've, I've experienced that myself. Um, and again, that goes back to building relationships, right? You've got to have really strong relationships with those people. And for me, those are built not over Zoom. They're built over dinner, right? going out for a few drinks, understanding the human being that you're working with, understanding what motivates them, not only from a, um, a personal point of view, right? What do they want to achieve in life and what's what are their aspirations and their goals and what excites them outside of work, but also from a corporate and career point of view, what do they want to do next, right? And that's one thing that probably I'll end on this point is that typically in a large corporate, um, it's quite different from a small company, is that, a lot of people there are there, are there to you know get go up the career ladder, right? They want to get the next promotion or the next opportunity. So there'll be something that they want, like that's what let's say they want to do that. If you can tap into that and go, okay, right, I'm I'm working with say a marketing director and I know he wants to become the you know the head of marketing for the UK. How can what I'm doing in this project help him to achieve his personal goals? And once you can show them that. They're boom. They're like, okay, this is my project that will help get me get my name in lights, help me get that promotion, help me land that next deal. And once you become part of their personal mission, then you're off and running. They'll do anything for you. Craig, that's a great point to end on. I think. <laughs> Thank you ever so much for joining us on the Marketing Negotiations Podcast for the Drum. Uh, where where can people find out more about you personally and about your business? Sure. So the best place for me is LinkedIn. Um, so Craig Letton, L-E-T-T-O-N. Um, you'll find me on LinkedIn. And uh, my business is called MRM Global. Uh, and you'll find us at mrmglobal.com. Craig, thank you ever so much for joining us. Cheers, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Drum Podcast series on Negotiation Insights with your host, Mike Lander. Please subscribe so that you'll catch the next episodes from our global marketing industry experts.